One of my favorite things to do uh, every year at Christmas when we visit family is to reminisce about stories. To reminisce about the stories of my childhood, of growing up. Uh, do you do this when you gather with family and you're around the table, maybe at Thanksgiving or Christmas? You listen to stories, you tell stories. And uh, what's so interesting uh, about the stories that we tell about our grandparents, about past Christmases, is um, they can sometimes kind of be interesting. Because here's the, here's the funny thing. There are some stories that I can tell, and I wasn't even there. Because I've heard my older brother tell them, and I've heard my parents tell them over and over again sitting around that table. Uh, there are other stories which we have different perspectives because maybe I was eight and my parents were 40 and eight-year-olds and 40-year-olds have different perspectives. The stories change and they, they're different depending on your perspective, right? And the Gospels aren't much different. We have four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus they're called the four Gospels. And when you turn in your Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, they're the first four books. That's where the New Testament, the new story of God's work in the world begins with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some of the stories they tell are similar, of course. Uh, they have... Um, they have all an account of the kind of the pinnacle of Jesus's time here on earth, his death and resurrection. Uh, there are some stories that were just major, huge events that are in two, three, and sometimes all of the gospels, but they all also have unique stories. There are stories about Jesus's life and ministry that are only found in their gospel, and who knows why? Uh, maybe they were the only one around that saw it. Uh, maybe they were the only one paying attention. Maybe they were the only one who heard Jesus say those words and the others were off doing something different. It could have been because of their perspective too. It could have been because of their place in life, their, their place in society, their place in culture, or their relationship with Jesus that maybe they heard those in a new, new uh, and unique way. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they spoke these unique stories. So for the next five years, we're in the six weeks or so in the spring leading up to Easter for the next five Easter's, we're going to be studying the life and ministry of Jesus. Who was he and what did he teach and what did he stand for? And we'll look at the unique stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, and then you're like, well, what's year five? There's only four, right? Year five will be some of those stories that are in many of the Gospels because you're gonna, we're going to miss, you're going to be like, well, why didn't we talk about this big story or this really big event because that, they were so, so big and so significant. They were in a lot of the Gospels. So that last year will be kind of a greatest hits of Jesus. This year, we're going to start with Matthew. The book of Matthew, because we're going to go in order that they are in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're calling this an eyewitness account. It's the stories that are only found in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And the reason we're calling this an eyewitness, eyewitness account is, who is Matthew? Well, he was an eyewitness. And see, depending on your perspective, you share things that are different. Matthew had an eyewitness observation. He was a disciple of Jesus, and he literally saw with his own two eyes a lot of the things. He's going to tell different stories than Luke, who wasn't an eyewitness, but was highly educated, very well-written physician, and who researched and studied a lot of people and interviewed a lot of people. And Mark, who wasn't there with Jesus, but was a very close friend of someone in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, well, he's going to tell a different story than someone like John who was actually in Jesus' inner circle with Peter and James. But these accounts are just Matthew's. He was a disciple of Jesus, but his journey to discipleship was much different than most of the rest of the guys who had been kind of staunch and faithful Jews their whole life. That wasn't Matthew's story. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, even in 2022, tax collectors don't have, right? We're not crazy about taxes. And, and does anybody like look forward like every March, you're like, I can't wait till tax season, right? Nobody looks forward to that. I mean, it's just hard for everybody, even for, for accountants. It's like, whoo, it's my busy season. But tax collectors in their day, they were considered turncoats. They were Jews who had partnered up with the Roman Empire to collect taxes from their fellow countrymen. And it was common practice for them to overcharge people for their taxes and extort money. And with the weight of a couple of Roman centurions behind you, you got whatever you asked for. So if Rome said you owed 100, the tax collector might go with three or four centurions and weapons and say, well, you owe me 120 and give 100 to Rome and keep 20 for myself. This was just what tax collectors did. They turned their back on their people. But you became very rich as a tax collector. And you became very hated by your people. And it was this Matthew this turncoat tax collector cheat that Jesus invited. Hey, you, follow me. So here's what I hope you will do uh, during the course of uh, this six weeks. I hope you will read through the book of Matthew. We're doing that together, and whether you're at home, you can, uh, you can find that online. If you're in the room today, I hope you got one of the books when you came in. If you didn't, grab one on the way out, and it's got a devotional journey for us for the next six weeks to read through the whole book of Matthew. Uh, it's about a chapter a day, four days a week, so if you miss a day or two, you'll have time to catch up over the weekend. It's really not that much reading, but we just believe, we'd love to do this, we believe that God will do something in our lives together if we will engage the scriptures uh, together. So where do you start in Matthew except what we call the Beatitudes? I mean, you got to start in the Beatitudes of Matthew, but it's in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles and you have, uh, or you have your app, or maybe you're at home there or on the back porch on this beautiful morning, uh, we'd love for you to open your Bibles there and follow along in Matthew 5. But let me catch you up to how we got to where we got in Matthew 5. Matthew uh, shares a genealogy of Jesus. It's a little bit of a unique part of his gospel in chapter 1. 
And Matthew has a very short birth narrative. He actually kind of tells the birth story through through the lens and through the eyes of what Joseph was going through and experiencing. And then Matthew is the only one who tells the story of the wise men coming to see the baby Jesus or the toddler Jesus in the months after Jesus was born, and the only one that tells the story of Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt. Now, have you ever thought about the birth stories, how they found their way into the Gospels? Because none of the writers were there to see that eyewitness as an eyewitness account. Most of the disciples, we believe, were younger than Jesus, so they weren't even born when Jesus was born. Have you ever thought about how they got those stories? There's really probably one or two sources, right? Maybe it was Jesus sitting around the campfire and everybody going to bed that night, but Matthew. And Jesus said, hey, Matthew, have I ever told you what happened right after I was born? Or maybe Mary, Jesus' mother, who was part of Jesus' ministry and traveling uh, kind of cohort that went around Galilee. Maybe Galilee, maybe, maybe Mary noticed that, that Matthew was writing everything down. And maybe she said, Matthew, I noticed you've been writing things down. I'd love to tell you the story about when Joseph and I took Jesus to Egypt. To Egypt, yes. Let me tell you the story. First, there were these wise men. Somebody had to tell Matthew the story. So he kind of tells this unique story. And then he has, there's some narrative in Matthew about John the Baptist. And then there's the story of Jesus' testing in the wilderness. And finally, Jesus starts teaching and preaching and healing and kind of begins his public ministry. And Matthew pretty much transcribes, he pretty much transcribes Jesus' longest that we know of and most important sermon. And we call it, the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus was on a mountainside and began to teach this. And the Beatitudes that we're going to read in in just a minute are a, a piece of the Sermon on the Mount. They're a part of it. Now, Luke 6 actually has a little bit of the Beatitudes in it. Luke writes a little bit, but they're much different. In fact, Luke's is not even called the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's are called in the Sermon on the Plain. And they're both very specific. Matthew says that when he's hearing Jesus say this, that Jesus goes on a mountainside to, say, to, pray, to, to preach. And Luke says that Jesus is in an open, flat field. They're both very specific. And this wouldn't be uncommon if you've been around me long enough. You know that preachers repeat ourselves. The reason is the Beatitudes are the heart of Jesus' message. They are the heart of this kingdom that he is ushering in in this new way. But Luke's don't compare to Matthew's. Luke names four Beatitudes. These blessed are. Matthew has nine. And then Matthew goes into a, a teaching from Jesus that no other gospel writer documents that are so important to be a part of the, the, the finishing of the Beatitudes. Now, sometimes you've ever wondered, like, where in the world did the word Beatitude come from? Anybody ever wondered that? I've been in church kind of my whole life, and I've wondered that. You might be new to church, and like, what do these mean? Uh, so, the Bible was originally written in two languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew by the Jewish people. The New Testament, by all the New Testament writers, was written in Greek. And for 300 plus years, you had to read Hebrew or Greek to read the Bible to read the scriptures. In about 382, 383, so about 
350 years after Jesus is finishing his ministry, they translate, the Bible is translated into Latin, at least a language that maybe people might be more common at that time for them to read. It's called the Latin Vulgate Bible. And in the Latin Vulgate Bible, in the, the Latin language, in these words, in the Beatitudes that say, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, in Latin, uh, it's, let's go back there to see the, to the, see the Beatitude. Uh, blessed is B-E-A-T-I, it's pronounced beady, and the next word for R is sunt, S-U-N-T, and spelled out in English, beady sunt, beady sunt. So over and over it was this language. So it was that, that first part of that word, B-E-A-U-T-I, or B-E-A-T-I there, that we get that, beatitudes. That's where we get that word. So it just has some Latin, Latin roots. It's not really an English word. It's a word we stole from Latin to say what these say. Now, Jesus, here's what you got to know before we speak this, and this is a, so much a part of this series, and one of the reasons we're doing this is to introduce us all into the world that Jesus lived. And Jesus was in a world where might makes right. You know what that means? Might makes right. That if you're strong, you win. He was in a world where if, if you had the, and the might could have been, Strength. It could have been military strength. Jesus was born under Roman oppression. He was born under Roman oppression. The reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, does anybody know why Jesus was born into Bethlehem? Because there was a census. Because the Roman governor had required a census to figure out who should pay what taxes and who lived where and how many people you had in your family. And Joseph, his father, was of the line of David and Bethlehem was the city of David. And he lived his whole life under Roman rule. So sometimes might meant military strength. Sometimes might meant right meant I, I, had, I was born into the right family. Might might have been genes. I had the right genes. It might have been riches. If I had riches, I, I could make right. There was no path. There was no path in Jesus' world for the downtrodden to make it. There was no American dream in Israel where you pick yourselves up on your bootstraps and you make it from the bottom of the totem pole to the top of the totem pole. You just didn't rise on the totem pole in Jesus' world. It was just the way Israel was, the way Galilee was. It was the world that you lived in, might made right. And even this, the might that you had, the strength that you had was in their minds evidence of blessing. You had this external evidence of blessing. In fact, the Caesars in Rome were called sons of God. They were thought that they were gods because they had strength, because they had power, because they had position. Might made right. And in fact, in Jesus' world, this is what they thought, that your place in life was evidence of your place with God. If you were rich, it meant because obviously you were blessed. Now, in our world, in our world, we kind of know that just because you're rich doesn't mean you're approved by God, right? Right? Okay, I just want to make sure y'all figure that out because I know some rich people. Um, just because you're powerful in our world, we know that that doesn't mean you're blessed by God. 
Just because you have position, we know in our world that doesn't mean that you're blessed by God. We, we know that, like our world, might doesn't make right. In our world, intellect and skills and kindness and compassion, like we have so many other ways to judge people, but not in their world. If you were rich, it was because God blessed you. It was because you were more righteous, and if you were poor, or you had no place in society, or you were destitute, or you were sick, diseased, well, that probably meant that you weren't so righteous, that there was some sin, there was something going on in your past, or your family's past. You were cursed, not blessed. So Jesus comes on the scene in this world where might makes right. This is crazy. God comes to earth, and he wants to go hear some preaching. And guess where he goes? Not to the synagogue. He goes out in the wilderness. He goes out in the wilderness to listen to this wild cousin of his who needs a haircut and wears weird clothes and preaches pretty deep profound, impactful truths, his cousin John the Baptist. That's where Jesus goes to listen to his preaching. And soon after that, Jesus begins to gather some disciples and begin preaching on his own and starts his first public ministry. And his his message from the get-go is this. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And you're going to hear this language, kingdom of heaven, over and over in Matthew You're going to hear, we're going to teach about a lot of the parables because there are some unique parables that are only found in Matthew. And it's often what Jesus will say is the kingdom of heaven is like. He's trying to tell them about what this kingdom that he is ushering in is really like. And then Jesus begins to draw a crowd and begins to recruit disciples. And they're not like the disciples of all the other rabbis. They're fishermen. Which probably means in their culture that they had stalled out on education. If you did the family trade, there's a good chance that you had kind of reached your education level. Because the ultimate education level was for you to be a disciple of a rabbi and then eventually a rabbi yourself. The only education they had was religious education. So the fishermen, that probably meant at 13, 15 years old that they had kind of stalled out. They weren't sharp enough. Maybe they didn't come from the right family and they weren't very educated. They were blue-collar folks, just kind of ordinary. And Jesus says, hey, you guys... Why don't you follow me? And sooner or later, people start bringing him the sick and the lame. And Jesus' crowd is much different than every other rabbi's. All of the undeserving are welcome in the presence of this new rabbi from Nazareth. Things are different with Jesus. And the whole premise of the Beatitudes that we're going to read in just a second, the whole premise is the Beatitudes, is to, is to speak against this world that Jesus was born into. The world that he was born, his blessings were earned. Might made right. I, I deserve it because of my family, because of my actions, because of my strength. I deserve it. And Jesus says, not in the kingdom of heaven, they're given. They're just a gift. You can only receive blessings in the kingdom of heaven 
Supreme happiness isn't found in what you attain or what you earn. It can only be getting, gotten by, by, by receiving the kingdom. Grace precedes requ- requirements in the kingdom. And the whole, the whole section is a paradox. The people who appear to be the ones who are indeed not blessed in their culture. Jesus says, no, they're blessed. The whole people who have no might to make anything right, Jesus says, are blessed. Jesus turns their world upside down because he says blessings are internal, not external. You can't always see it, Jesus said. You you can have all the money in the world and all the power in the world and all the position of the world and you can come from all the right family in the world and your mom and daddy could have been the right families and they married into you to make you an even better family. It doesn't matter. In Jesus' world, blessings are internal. It only comes by gift. And to who it comes to is quite a surprise. So these are what's called the Beatitudes. The blessed are beginning in chapter 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. Then he looks at the crowd and he said, blessed are you. When people insult you. When you get insulted, do you feel blessed? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice, Jesus says when this happens. Rejoice. Is that what you do? You're like, man, someone gossiped about me today. So happy. (laughs) Yeah. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The poor in spirit were often financially poor. I I mean, that clearly meant that they hadn't been blessed. Jesus, but Jesus says, no, not, not in my world. They're blessed. Tragedy in their minds was often believed to be because of some sin or past transgression in the family. That's why you had a tragic illness. That's why you had a tragic death. There must have been something you'd done. And Jesus said, no. If you mourn, you're blessed. You're blessed. Meek? Come on, Jesus. Meek is for the weak. Come on, Jesus. Jesus said, no, 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 no. In my world, the meek are blessed. Might doesn't make right in the kingdom. Okay, but Jesus, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? We're in a world that hungers for power and money. We hunger to be right. We're hungry to be heard. We're hungry for our video to go viral. 
No, you got to hunger for the right things to be blessed in the kingdom. Mercy. Jesus, mercy doesn't get you to the top. You've got to be ruthless in this world to make it in my business. Well, in the kingdom, you want to be blessed, you show mercy. And you might even get a little more mercy back to you if you do that. Come on, Jesus. We live in a world that is about drawing a line in the sand and proving that we are right. We are way more interested at throwing haymakers than being peacemakers. Well, that's not the way of the kingdom. In the kingdom, the peacemakers are blessed. But Jesus, what if I'm persecuted? If I'm persecuted, that means I don't have power. I don't have position. There is someone else oppressing me. And Jesus says, I know it. But in the kingdom, power doesn't equal blessing. You're blessed. And then there's this really, this is really interesting. In Luke's four Beatitudes, they kind of mirror uh, 5.11. Luke kind of says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and sort of ends it there. But Matthew is the only one that adds this line and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you. Because guess what? Matthew had everybody saying things against him. The Romans hated him because he was Jewish. The Jews hated him because he wasn't Jewish enough. Matthew heard voices on every street corner that he walked by. And for Matthew, this was welcome news. You are not blessed. I think that's why Matthew heard this one. And listen, teenagers, listen. College students, listen. You are not blessed because of other people's opinions about you. Jesus said, you can only be blessed by me. And your identity, you're, you're fine. You're fine. I, I give blessing. <laughs> and he says, your reward is in heaven. That's the reward. It's not even just internal, it's eternal. And in, in the crate, Jesus' teaching is so different. His kingdom is so different than what everyone expected and, he, and everyone had experienced that someone on the fringe of so, social acceptance like Matthew probably could not believe their ears that everyone is eligible to receive the blessings of the kingdom. And I don't know if, I don't know if John was around and heard this too. He probably did, but John was a faithful Jew and he was pretty accepted in his world. So maybe it just didn't make a dent with him. And I don't know if someone who Luke interviewed told him about this teaching, but Luke was wealthy and a physician and educated, and he just didn't, it, maybe it just didn't hit. But for someone who was an outcast, this was radical, that everyone is except eligible to receive the blessing of the kingdom, and maybe it's radical for you too. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have your theology just perfect. You don't have to have been in church every Sunday of your life. You don't have to have the order of the books of the Bible memorized. You don't have to, to have your act together, and you don't have to be perfect. We'd know you were lying anyway. 
everyone, everyone is the message. Jesus walks out into the field with, with a ragtag bunch of misfits, the sick and the lame and the downtrodden and the people that no one expected and disciples who never would have been anybody else's disciples. And he said, hey, everyone is eligible to receive the blessings of the kingdom because in my kingdom, it's going to be really different. Grace precedes requirements. In my kingdom, blessing is given, not earned. And then, and then, so that's the context of this, this kingdom that Jesus is announcing. And then Jesus says, looks at this ragtag bunch, looks at this kind of crowd that had never been called blessed by anybody, and he points at them, and he says, you guys, you have a mission. You have a purpose. You guys, you guys, you're talking about the guys back at the synagogue. No, 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 you in the field. You guys, you have a call on your life. And then he shares two metaphors to explain what that call is. The first one he says, and this is only found in the book of Matthew, and I love it, I love it, because I think Matthew heard this and thought, wait a second, wait a second. You mean I haven't messed up too much, Jesus? You mean I can be called to? You mean I can be a part of the purpose to? Yeah, you, Matthew, you, and all the other yous here. You are the salt of the earth. <laughs> this is so weird to me. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Okay, this is... It is no longer, so yeah, it is no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is such a bizarre thing, because, okay, let's, let's be real here. How many of you have ever accidentally uh, sipped spoiled milk? You ever done that? You're like, whoo, right? Um, maybe eating a piece of fruit that's gone sour. You ever done that? It's like, oh. That's kind of bad. How many of you ever eaten a stale cracker? Right? I hope none of you have taken a bite of rancid meat, but you've seen it. You ever had some meat in the refrigerator? And you're just like, I gotta throw that out. Have you ever put salt on your food and said that salt's not salty anymore? I mean, like, can't you keep a carton of Morton's in your pantry for like 13 years? I, I, like, for my whole life, I've read this passage, and I'm like, Jesus, I've never known salt to lose its saltiness. Like, I, I, don't, I don't get what you're saying. But that's because in our world, we pretty much use salt for one thing. It's just to season things, to make it taste good. But not in Galilee in the first century. Salt was way more important. Yes, they used it to season food. The second really important thing they used, which we have some concept of, right, is to cure meat. A family without salt was a family without meat because you had to cure meat to preserve it so that you could actually have meat because they didn't have refrigeration like we had. But the third and most important use for salt in Galilee was for cooking. 
The way they cooked was in a, a domed oven that sort of looked like a pizza oven. And the best fuel that they would use was salt, well, this is kind of gross, mixed with dried animal droppings. And the chemical reaction between the salt and the dried droppings would cause the fuel to burn hotter and longer. But after a while, the salt loses whatever that chemical in it and it won't work anymore. And the family would throw it out because he could still season food, but it wasn't good for what it was meant for best and most in their world. For us, it's a metaphor that seems kind of weird because we can't imagine salt losing its saltiness. For everyone in Galilee, it made perfect sense because they knew that salt did its best work when it was messed up with something dirty to make something wonderful. And you, church, are the salt of the earth. And we do our best work when we mix it up with something dirty to make something wonderful. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world's a mess. And sometimes the world out there smells a little bit like not-so-dried animal droppings. And we don't do our best inside the walls of the church we don't do our best when our hands are raised in worship. We do our best when we are the church mixed up with a messy world to make something wonderful. You are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus says, one more. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That'd be crazy. No, instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world Blessing in the kingdom is given, not earned, and everyone is eligible, and you now have a new identity. You are no longer poor. You are no longer mourners. You, you are no longer meek. You are salt and light for the world. You are not defined the way the world defines you. You have a purpose. You are blessed, and it is meant to be shared. And Jesus says, if you, if you don't use the salt, the way it's supposed to be used, and in a timely manner. If you put the light under a bowl, it messes you all up. It's not even what you're designed for. Isolation, Jesus says. Isolation compromises our identity in Christ. And friends, I just have a fear about this, all right? I have a fear about this in the church, that we want to isolate ourselves, that we want to segment ourselves, that we want to just be with Christian folks and just do the Christian things. And Jesus says, if you isolate yourself, you are putting the light under a bowl. You are not using the salt to be used for what it's supposed to be used for. We do our best work not on Sunday mornings. We do our best work out in the world, being salt and being light. 
The reason I want you to serve on serve day, the reason I want you to serve this coming Saturday is because I want you to be salt and light in the world. The reason, it's more important than Sunday morning because if all we do is gather in here and we won't be the church that God is building out there, we will never make a dent in our city and we can never ever say that we are actually for Birmingham. We are just for gathering. But that's not who we are. We are for our city because he's for us. And, and here's the cool thing. It's not that so people, when we do that, when we go outside the walls of our church and when we go on a serve day or when we uh, go and just serve our neighbors and when we love our city and love our neighborhood, it is never ever so that people would say, oh, wow, what a great Christian they are. Oh, wow, whoa, wow what a great church they are. No, what did Jesus say? So that they will see our good deeds, our saltiness and our light out in the world and they will glorify our Father in heaven. They will say, those people they're part of something I don't understand. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed, and it is not earned, it is just given. Your identity is changed. Wherever you are, the kingdom of heaven is where grace precedes requirement, but you are blessed to be a blessing. You are not blessed just to sit and soak it in and receive it and drink it. We are blessed to pour it out. Maybe you've heard of who uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. Maybe you haven't. He was a German Lutheran pastor in the 1930s and 40s. As tyranny strip swept across Europe, the more things change. But he was such a devout Christian, he stood against the Nazi regime and Adolf Hitler. He spoke out against the murdering of Jews who were not part of his faith, but part of his human race made in the image of God. At 39 years old, he was hanged by the Nazis in 1945 as the Nazi empire was crumbling. But he had a quote that just rocked my world as I thought about this message from Jesus. He said, your life as a Christian should make non-Christians question their disbelief in God. Our saltiness in the world, our light in the world should make people question their idea about who God is. It's not that they point to us. It's that they point to our Heavenly Father. Friends, I think this is the answer for a broken world. We will not pound them into submission or argue the world into agreement, but we just might salt them into salvation and light them into life, into the only kingdom where identity can be changed because it's just giving. I want to tell you something. I love church buildings. I'm a pastor. I love it. But this isn't just a place for us to gather. This is a place from which we go. So let's go. You're blessed to be a blessing. Ben and the band are going to lead us in a song that I just want you to stay seated for. It's really just a blessing that just, um, just, just nails down this scripture so well.
And I just want you to receive what they have to sink over you.